0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello, and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, coming to you from Wurundjeri land.
0: And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turable land. Today, the need to reduce weight stigma in healthcare.
1: How not all health screening is necessarily a good thing. And a study which flips previous thinking about Alzheimer's disease upside down. Removing the bad stuff from the brain may be the wrong approach, or at least not enough, because the so-called bad stuff may also be doing good. What I'm talking about is a protein called amyloid in the brains of people with Alzheimer's disease. The lead researcher was Alberto Espe, who's professor of neurology at the University of Cincinnati. Thank you for inviting me. Now we've done a lot on the health reports and I've done a bit on television on this issue of amyloid. And Alzheimer's disease and I must say that some of this a lot of the coverage has been quite skeptical because every time you seem to introduce a new drug to remove the amyloid plaque from the brain it doesn't seem to work although there's an indication maybe there's a new trial that might have shown some benefit and now you in this study have shown yet something else that's contradictory that does your head in a little bit because many people talk about amyloid as if it's like cholesterol And if only you reduce the amyloid, let you reduce cholesterol, you're going to reduce Alzheimer's disease. But if the results of your research are right, that may not be the right approach.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely correct. The amyloid framework has really been one-sided. We figure, well, here are these things that look really bad, and why don't we just think they are the cause of the problem? But once you start looking at the story from the two sides of the protein aggregation process, then you realize that what we're calling the cause of the problem, the amyloid plaques, is really one end of the process and the normal protein is at the other end.
1: So in other words, what you've got is abnormality on one side, the plaques, just to reiterate what you've just said, and on the other side, you've got this protein called amyloid, which has a function in the brain which nobody's too sure about and it's circulating in your blood and it's doing stuff Which may actually be doing you good, which is what you discovered in this study.
2: Right. And the caveat here is that we think that these proteins are actually in the brain, mostly. There probably is a way to measure them in blood. We measured them in the spinal fluid, which is
1: what surrounds the brain. Now, your study wasn't just into anybody who might develop Alzheimer's disease. It was a specific group of people who had a genetic susceptibility.
2: Yeah, that's correct. And I just want to make sure that one aspect is very clear. And that is that most of us have amyloid in our brains as we age. But very few of us with amyloid go on to develop Alzheimer's disease, the condition in which there is dementia. However, the levels of the normal protein are going to be invariably low. With dementia, the amyloid beta levels are already low so that's uh, very important. And that part we've just neglected in the trials, the trials that you have uh, mentioned at the beginning are trials that are aiming at reducing the concentration of the plaques in some cases, in addition to reducing the concentration of the plaques, some of these drugs reduce the concentration of the precursor, the soluble normal protein, the A-beta 42, which is already low to begin with. And of course, in those cases, patients have worsened.
1: And the reason that they've said that they're low, so it's not a new observation, is this, oh, well, it's been chewed up by the plaques, So the plaques are sucking it out of the brain. And that's why it's low. we have kind of just cast it off. It's not a serious issue because well, why wouldn't it be low? But your research, to some extent, contradicts that. Yes. Yeah.
2: The plaques today were normal proteins yesterday. And so that's what's perhaps Best to think about. Uh, Plaques aren't there to begin with. Plaques are the end result of normal proteins, which are in a dissolvable, we call them soluble state. They aggregate into an insoluble, and that's the amylo plaques. So amylo plaques are really the end life, the end of the life of a protein, of a normal protein. And we have assumed that the minute the proteins turn into plaques, they turn toxic. So the alternative is that the moment the proteins turn into amyloid plaques, they can no longer function. In fact, that is what we tested with our
1: study. Now your study was into people with a genetic propensity to Alzheimer's disease. And I mean, just to jump to the finding, the finding was, these people had a strong genetic tendency to develop Alzheimer's disease, but in fact those whose proteins remained high, in other words the soluble proteins that hadn't yet gone into the plaque, that when their levels were high, that was protective against dementia.
2: Absolutely, that's exactly right. So even though the individuals that had a mutation were predicted to have dementia, those that continued to generate levels of the normal protein the A beta 42, at a high level, remained normal over the span of the study, over a three-year period. And that is particularly interesting because we focused on individuals that already have plaques. And in our narrative, those of us who have plaques, including those who have mutations, are in what we refer to as the Alzheimer's continuum. They already have the disease even if they may not have any symptoms so in, in this situation we were interested in understanding is it possible that the plaques in a context of a normal cognition is possible because the levels of the protein remain high and, and that's exactly what we found
1: now this is a specific group of people who've got a genetic propensity is there any indication that those of us who develop amyloid plaques as we age yet don't develop dementia, that we too have high levels of the soluble protein, the soluble amyloid?
2: Absolutely. We, in fact, did that study last year. So we published a similar analysis last year in a cohort of individuals that already have plaques, but they had no mutations. And we essentially tested the same hypothesis and, in fact, found what we have found in the genetic cohort, just the same. What makes the genetic study more poignant though, is that in our concept of what Alzheimer's is, we have often come into the idea that amyloid must be toxic because we have people who have a mutation that quote, overexpress amyloid. And while that is somehow true in the sense that amyloid formation in most genetic, not all, but most genetic causes of Alzheimer's is definitely overexpressed. Well, that is overexpressed because it's depleting the normal protein. So these plaques also come from normal protein and the more plaques a brain makes, the lower the levels of the normal protein and that's irrelevant. It turns out that losing more of that is quite consequential and that part has been missing from the research in Alzheimer's and of course from the therapeutic endeavors.
1: Two questions. The first one is do we know what the soluble protein does in the brain?
2: What we do know is that a beta-42, the normal protein is neurotrophic factor. It allows neurons to grow. to grow, to be able to communicate with one another, et cetera. So it really is important.
1: Do we know what factors keep your soluble levels of amyloid up? That's a great question. I don't
2: think we have an answer. We don't know. It is possible that there may be an effect of the environment, the, the diet, et cetera. But we honestly don't actually know what that might be. And what about medications? to raise it. So that's actually what we are working on. There are non-medications that raise it. And that is in part because there really hasn't been, as I mentioned earlier, much of an interest on the other side of the story. The fact that proteins are being depleted, are being consumed in the process of transforming into plaques, And with colleagues at the Karolinska Institute uh, and the University of Eastern Finland, we are already working on how to replenish the levels of the normal proteins using an intravenous infusion. What's interesting, though, you mentioned at the beginning that there may be an exception in the anti-amyloid treatments that could be conceivably giving rise to a modest but significant cognitive benefit, and that's lecanimab Now, the phase 2B, which is the study that inspired the current one, even though that study was negative, what it did show, though, is that this drug is capable of raising the levels of the soluble, the normal protein. So it'd be fascinating to know what the magnitude of increase of the normal protein is, And perhaps it really goes above compensation defined in our studies. Neurodegeneration is really a process of loss. We lose everything, neurons, glia, proteins, everything. It's literally a loss. And that's why the brain shrinks. And somehow in our narrative forever, we've held on to the idea that it is a problem of gain. And the gain is that of toxicity of proteins. And it's very unfortunate because we love narratives in which there is a villain. And of course, toxic protein gives us the reason to go and strike it as an enemy. And unfortunately, we have never done anything good with it. And so this study hopefully will allow us to think that, yeah, what's most important in neurodegenerative conditions, Alzheimer's in particular, is that there is a loss and that perhaps if the loss is less, if individuals are able to sustain a level of protein above a certain compensation threshold, they remain normal. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Norman. Thank you for inviting me.
1: Alberto Espo is Professor of Neurology at the University of Cincinnati and the same principle may apply, he thinks, to Parkinson's disease and other neurodegenerative diseases of the brain in terms of the proteins that are involved in them. You're listening to The Health Report.
0: Australians, on average, are getting bigger, but that doesn't mean we've gotten better at treating people with obesity. In fact, these people are often stigmatised in healthcare settings, making it even harder for them to get the care that they need. Andrew Wilson and Lisa Mullen have both spent most of their lives in bigger bodies and their experiences in medical settings have had a significant effect on their health, negatively, but more recently, in positive ways as well.
3: I've lived with obesity for most of my life, It came to a point for me when I was visiting a GP, it wasn't anything directly to do with obesity, but the doctor took me aside, unfortunately, and told me, you know, what are you doing to yourself, mate? You've got a small child and look at what you're doing to yourself. It really uh, put me back a lot. Because of that, the way I was talked to, I really feared going back to the doctor. I avoided going back to the doctor for about 10 years. And in that time, that 10 years, it got worse. Avoiding family functions, I'd avoid school trips and worried that when I'd go to, to, to pick him up from school that he would get bullied because of my size. You just want to self-isolate because you don't want people to see you the way you are. What changed was after that 10-year stint, really yo-yoing with my weight, finally um, used a referral that I was given to an obesity clinic in Western Sydney. Up until the point of going to the clinic, I was very apprehensive because I knew I'd be, you know, my weight would be assessed, my health and all those things. So Mm. I was trying to make excuses to not get to the clinic. And somehow I did get there. And when I got there, all the fears and all that anxiety was allayed because uh, of how I was treated there. The people there had been trained in a way that was respectful. I felt listened to. From that, things changed a lot for me. Well, because I was engaging with healthcare and there wasn't the judgment. In the past, it's been the blame game that you're too lazy or you're too greedy. I learned more about the science of obesity and uh, I felt less alone, that there was more to it and there was things I could work on. I started not that long after a men's walk and talk group in the Blue Mountains. It gave me more purpose to do things yeah. and uh, feel more confident in myself, where it was the opposite before that. I was hiding away.
4: There's this one-size-fits-all approach. They do tend to sort of go, here's a diet sheet, go and do some exercise, get on the scales and then come back in a month's time and tell me how you're doing. I know what I should be eating. I know the dangerous foods. Um, I know about exercise. So it's applying it practically.
0: What's different about your Diamond in the Rough GP?
4: She actually listened to me. So I did a lot of research myself about the kind of stuff that would work for me and the kind of healthy approach that would work for me. It did mean that I would go to her and say, look, is is this something that's doable? For me, it was weight loss surgery. And she said, I've got just the person for you. She knew the right um, referral to give and she worked very quickly to get it done. Um, and she's still with me on that
0: journey, you know, as I'm learning my new body and what it can do. So you've had weight loss surgery. Do you feel that people treat you differently now that you're a different size?
4: It's as if they take you seriously because beforehand, I think the biggest thing for me is that people think you're not disciplined. People sort of go, oh, well, she can't control her eating. How can she control her life? There's definitely unconscious bias and um, you notice it when you're meeting people, even walking along the street where people will have eye contact with you. If you are overweight, people just don't see that you're there. Uh, It's given me a big message as to how society does treat people when they're overweight.
0: So what can healthcare do to reduce stigma? A perspective paper in Public Health Research and Practice has addressed just that, and I've been speaking to lead author, Blake Lawrence.
5: We now know through years of research that there are many psychological, social and environmental reasons and even underlying biological reasons as to why someone develops overweight and obesity. So the negative attitudes towards someone like this can actually manifest and negatively impact their willingness to participate in society. And really importantly, is that if someone's experiencing weight stigma in society and even in the healthcare setting, then they're less likely to then seek help for any health concerns that they may have, which then can develop this negative cycle in their life where they're not participating in the healthcare system, and then their health worsens again and so on, and it tends to feed back in that loop.
0: How do you unpick the health effects of being overweight or obese to start with, or things that might have led to them being like that? from? perhaps delaying health-seeking behaviour, like you say, because the healthcare setting can sometimes feel like a really hostile environment for people in bigger bodies.
5: It's a very tricky thing to know exactly what is the catalyst, whether it's somebody that may have started to develop some overweight or obesity, and then they start to experience the stigma, which then leads to other health concerns, or maybe they've experienced stigma in other ways, which then prevents them from seeing their doctor, which leads them to gaining weight. So, Trying to determine the causal relationship between these factors is very difficult, but we know that they're really inextricably linked. And if we don't start addressing the presence of this stigma and really most importantly in like the healthcare sector and in the public health sector, then people with overweight and obesity are going to continue to feel this stigmatization, which then prevents them from really you know, trying to maybe improve their health in any way.
0: The thing that really gets me when we have these conversations is that the premise of this is that, yes, it's not based on people's individual control, so stop stigmatising them. And I wonder whether perhaps a better starting point should be just be nice to people. kind of doesn't matter if it's their fault or not.
5: Yeah, it's really important with an article like this that we've written about weight stigma is that we're not saying that a healthy diet and physical activity aren't important because they definitely are. And they are one component of a healthy lifestyle. But at the same time, it's about having that overall empathy for people, I think. And it's just understanding that many people have different circumstances that have often led to why maybe they've gained weight. So without an understanding of some of their, say, underlying maybe social factors, psychological factors and personal factors, then we can't really begin to address the rising rates of overweight and obesity in this country. So we do need to really just step back a little bit and have a bit more empathy and a bit more understanding of the individual before we can begin to just sort of recommend, say, lifestyle changes to them that may help to improve their health.
0: So your study is really sort of saying weight stigma does persist and it's really sometimes driven by misconceptions around individual responsibility. So what are the recommendations that you formulated?
5: The key recommendations from this perspective article are really focused on public health researchers and practitioners because they have such a large influence on really the health of Australians. They influence policy, they influence the government guidelines that come out that you know, encourage us to adopt healthier lifestyles. So. The key recommendations for this paper is first for public health researchers to engage with people living with obesity. It's really important that people living with overweight and obesity are involved in the development of the research moving forward. It's very difficult to design research to actually try and help them improve their health. The next key recommendation was that public health practitioners must implement and promote weight-inclusive policies. So this is really, really important, because If there is any form of weight stigma or weight bias in a healthcare setting, it's been shown that people will just stop participating and they'll stop, say, visiting their doctor or attending the hospital because they are feeling stigmatised. And this can have a seriously negative impact on someone's health. And there's been even research to show that it can increase the risk of death by someone not wanting to participate in the healthcare system. And then the third main recommendation was that public health campaigns must leave the changing discourse around obesity and weight stigma public health campaigns of the past have actually been shown to be somewhat stigmatizing themselves. Through the use of social media, for example, you know, public health campaigns can be designed in a way to actually raise awareness around the underlying complexity of obesity and how it isn't just driven by individual choices. And I think as a society, as we begin to understand how complex obesity actually is for each person, then we will begin to have more empathy and understanding on why it's so challenging to address And I think only then can we begin to, say, improve people's health moving forward. I think generally speaking is that this article here, while it is focused on weight stigma, uh, fits in with a broader program of research that I'm doing at Curtin University, looking at the social and psychological uh, factors that do relate to obesity. I think this is just something that we're really trying to highlight here is that obesity is much more complex than just a diet and physical activity and how it can affect your health. Moving forward, we really need to have a broader perspective of the challenges that we face with obesity in Australia.
0: Blake, thanks so much for joining us.
5: No worries. Thanks for the chat today.
0: Dr Blake Lawrence is in the Curtin School of Population Health.
1: It makes intuitive sense that if you screen people for disease, that the outcome is good because you get on top of the problem and either cure it or stop it from getting worse. That's what, for example, cancer screening tries to do, but it doesn't always work that way. With heart disease and stroke prevention through screening, there's been a lot of debate about how far you should go, such as screening for heart disease in people who, a few decades ago, would have been thought of as old, but who may now have 30 years to go. That's what a large randomized trial in Denmark sought to discover using blood tests, ECGs, electrocardiograms, CT scans of the heart, and other tests looking for coronary heart disease, Peripheral artery disease, that's the blood, vessels, the arteries in your legs, for example. Diabetes, aneurysms, particularly of the aorta in your abdomen and in your chest, and heart rhythm abnormalities. One of the researchers was Dr. Axel Diedrichsen, who's Professor of Cardiac Imaging at Odense University Hospital in Denmark. Welcome to The Health Report. Thank you so much. Now, these you ended up looking at men in their 60s and 70s. So let's get
6: this off the table. Why not women? Oh, that's a tricky question, and also, I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that actually, but in the very beginning, eight years ago, we examined more than 1,000 men and more than 1,000 women, and we found that the uh, severe education, like uh, calcium scores, about 400, was very common in men, but not among women, and also, and the were very uncommon among females. So we consider if this trial, if this screening explanation is not going to work among men, it certainly not will work among women also. And just also, to explain, we have, we have, just
1: before you go on to expand on that, sorry. just to explain for the audience, the calcium score is what you detect on a CT scan. You see calcium around the heart and you make the assumption that the level of calcium you see on the uh, CT scan relates to the, how, much heart, uh, how much blockage of arteries you've got around the heart.
6: Yeah, exactly. It is the best marker we have got for for uh, heart disease in the future. It's it's better than smoking. Even smoking is better to predict uh, uh, coronary heart disease. Uh, uh, the calcium score is better than smoking to predict uh, coronary heart disease. So it's a very strong marker. And this strong marker was very common on men, among men, but not among the women. So we had to decide how to use our money. And we decided to spend all our money on men. And we've been really made a lot of criticism since then, but that was a it was choice a, we had we It was, did a, it was pragmatic. Thing.
1: So if it worked yeah, in it men, was. if it didn't work in men, it wasn't going to work in women. And the outcome you were looking for, at least in this study, the primary outcome was over five years whether you reduced the chances of dying of a heart attack or stroke or indeed any other cause.
6: Yeah, our primary income was actually uh, mortality of any cause. And, and that's a really ambitious uh, outcome to have. I mean, you can't prevent all causality if you screen for breast cancer or colorectal cancer or lung cancer. It is impossible to do that. You might be able to decrease risk of dying of breast cancer or colorectal cancer or lung cancer, but not going to prevent the oral mm-hmm. but, but But we tried. We, we tried to do this uh, estimation, to do this uh, uh, endpoint with all all causality, is very ambitious. Okay, and, and, and very close. And just to uh,
1: explain, uh, without going into any detail, is that if you found a problem in the group of men who got the interventions, who got the screening tests, they were offered treatment. They didn't have to accept it, but they were offered
6: treatment. Yeah, that was another thing. We invited uh, more than sixteen thousand men for the screening explanation, and unfortunately, not all had the screening explanation. So among the 16,000, only 10,500 had the screening explanation. So more than, than 5,000 did not accept the explanation. And that is a problem for us when we look at the results at the end, because we can't help those 5,000 who did not accept the screening explanation, but they're actually included in the, in the statistic analysis.
1: And why didn't they accept the screening?
6: Um, we, we, can, we can never uh, get 100% to accept the screening explanation. It's impossible. Uh, w- but we have not asked them, so I have to guess. I think that some felt they're too ill. Some think, well, they can't help me. Some think, uh, I'm, I'm healthy, I don't need this trial. and Some might think, I don't want uh, the explanation. I'm scared of the results there might be a lot of different uh, results. Unfortunately, I can't tell right now.
1: Now, you didn't find a significant reduction in mortality, but when you picked it apart, there were some differences, particularly in the younger men in the cohort.
6: Yeah, that's really interesting. To start with the elderly men, there was no difference in all-cause mortality among the elderly men, no difference at all. And when you say elderly, you mean over 70? Yeah, from, from 70 to 74 years, sorry among the men from the 65 until the 69, there was a huge difference. 11% decreased all because mortality, and that is really remarkable. So if you had this, this examination, the risk of dying was decreased with uh,
1: 11%. And that's allowing uh, and that, for the dul- the dilutionary effect of a lot of men not accepting the treatment, so you were actually dealing exactly, with a, exactly. a, a dilution there. So. Can you pick it pick this it apart? Because you're doing lots of stuff here, which the average general practitioner would not do, so some of the stuff they would they would do cholesterol, they test for diabetes, they might do an ECG, although that's controversial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. they might yeah. in Australia there's lots of people doing calcium scans, but whether they' are doing them the right way is questionable. Um, you're doing a blood pressure in the arm and in the and in the ankle to see if there's a difference for peripheral arteries. I mean it was a big deal, this the, the test that we're doing. Were you able to dissect which tests were making the difference there beyond just the standard ones where we know it makes a difference, cholesterol, blood pressure, maybe coronary calcium, but definitely diabetes. Yeah,
6: sure. It, it was a very comprehensive screening explanation. We scanned for seven different uh, diseases. Uh, so at one end, there was no difference in treatment in uh, antihypertensive treatments after five years. There was no difference in anti diabetic treatments and there was no difference in anti So I think it was not because of our screen interest for hypertension, diabetes and atrial fibrillation. These things did not, I believe, make a difference to the results. What did what I think make a difference? Sorry? What did what did? Yeah, I think that the most important thing was the Katniss score. Uh, um, when we found a Katniss score above the median for age and gender, uh, we prescribed statin and aspirin and guided for a healthy lifestyle. Those three things, I believe, did a, a huge difference. We can see that... that um, uh, uh, Um, prescriptions of of, um, uh, statin and and, uh, and aspirin was really increased in the entire group. And I
1: think that... That made made the difference. Look, we'll have the reference to that article on on our website. It's got huge implications. Thanks for joining us. Okay, thank you. Bye. Dr. Axel Diedrichsen is at Odense University Hospital in Denmark. And that's been the Health Report. And it's bye for me.
0: And it's bye for me. See you next week. See you then.